0: Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature. do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is Season 2 episode six and on today's program I talk to historian Dr Spencer Jones, Senior Lecturer in War Studies at the University of Wolverhampton. Spencer spoke to me about motivation and morale in British and Boer forces during the second half of the South African conflict during the guerrilla phase of the war. Spencer spoke to me from his home in the middle. Spencer, welcome back to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Boer War or the Anglo-South African War. Well, thank you for inviting me back
1: on, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm a, I am work at the University of Wolverhampton, where I'm a senior lecturer in armed forces and war cities, And I'm also the regimental historian for the Royal Regiment of Artillery and the guild president for the Guild of Battlefield Guide. So I wear quite a few hats, all of them, I should say, related, of course, to military history. My interest in the Boer War really began actually in, um, in uh, a hospital bed uh, of all things. Um, I, was, uh, I was very ill, <laughs> and, uh, I needed something to read in hospital and I picked up a copy of Thomas Pakenham's, The Boer War, actually from a library uh, to read uh, in the intervening uh, uh, spells between operations. Um, absolutely hooked me, completely fascinated me. And that was before I'd even considered really what I was gonna do for my PhD. Um, subsequently, I, it was suggested I might look at the influence of the, the Boer War and the, the British Army, the First World War. And having already read Pakenham, had already had that interest. It was a natural leap from um, what I'd previously been studying, which was actually the American Civil War, into the Boer War and the First World War. Which would become the focus of uh, of my PhD study in the uh, in the noughties. So, the uh, I suppose a happy coincidence, really, having to choose a Pakenham's book. Which, incidentally, if you're listening and you've not read it, and you're interested in the war, it is a, it's an excellent read, especially especially if you're interested in the military aspects of the war. Um, perhaps showing its age a little bit now. It's published in the late seventies, and it's got uh, you can see the influence that era on it. But it's, it's a terrific read and it's a military history written in a way that I just don't think we have military history written anymore. It's it's packed with characters and it's packed with incidents and uh, it, it's a really, really good read. It's, if you only, I always say if you read one book on the Boer War, read mine. If you read two books on the Boer War,
0: I'll read mine and Thomas Pakenham's. To give us some background, what exactly was the Boer War all about? Who were they, where was it and what was it all about? So... Um,
1: I've previously mentioned this on on, uh, season one of the podcast, so I'll do a quick summary of this. But the the Boers were the descendants of Dutch settlers who'd arrived in Cape Town in the mid-1600s and had colonised the area uh, and had founded essentially what would become Cape Colony, or now simply the Cape, in South Africa. And they'd lived there, a relatively small European population, um, uh, lived on the west coast of South Africa and in the Cape, For about 200 years, and the area had actually struggled to attract immigration from Europe. There'd been some German immigration, some French immigration, some Dutch immigration, but South Africa was a little bit of an inhospitable location, at least compared to other Dutch colonial holdings in the Caribbean or the Far East. And so it didn't attract much immigration. By the early 1800s, or by 1800, in fact, there was about 40,000 whites living around Cape Colony. They then came under the, um, and they they had a a really strong independent outlook. Because they were a relatively small, homogenous white population, their language had changed. They spoke a medieval form of Dutch, which was known as Afrikaans and quite literally Africans. Uh, And they also identified themselves no longer as Dutch or even European, but instead as Afrikaners, again, literally Africans. And, And the language had changed. The culture was still rooted in the earliest colonial culture from the 1600s. There'd been very little immigration to bring new ideas or new concepts. And so the Afrikaner population was essentially medieval Dutch in many ways very independently minded. They didn't have the best relations with the Netherlands. And then in the early 1800s, the Napoleon Wars, Britain took over, uh, annexed in fact Cape Colony as a way to prevent the French using it as a base for privateers that could attack the routes to and from India. And this was never going to end happily for the British and the Afrikaners. The Afrikaners also known as Boers, which is simply farmer. Boer and Afrikaner synonymous at this stage. It's not a derogatory phrase, it's simply another way of describing the white South African population. The British rules took over, formally annexed the area in 1815, and immediately there were problems. The two cultures were radically different. Despite the Afrikaans having European origins, they didn't have the same legal system, didn't have the same language, didn't have the same cultural outlook, uh, didn't even have the same religion. Afrikaners, much more of an Old Testament religion, really rooted in Protestantism of the 1600s compared to Britain. And so the Afrikaners chafed enormously under British rule. There were all kinds of political problems, tensions, difficulties. It just was not going to work. Culminating in the 1830s, a variety of things triggered this. Um, A major influence was the British decision to abolish slavery in the empire. The Afrikaners were a slaveholding people, Combined with various problems on the eastern frontiers uh, of the Cape, the Afrikaners didn't think that. they were getting military protection from the British and they were getting raided and pillaged uh, by local African tribes. And these factors combined to the Boers undertaking what was known as the Great Trek uh, migration east across South Africa, possibly involving as many as 20,000 people in a, a series of waves that would eventually end up on, in eastern South Africa <clears throat> on the Indian Ocean side, um, fight various wars, particularly against the Zulus. And it would culminate in founding two independent Boer republics, the Orange Free State and the South African Republic, the South African Republic much better known as the Transvaal. And these two small republics um, continued to have um, antagonistic relationships with the British and each other, I might add. The British had actually lost a war fighting these independent republics, the First Boer War in 1880 to 81, and had recognized Boer independence. Formally in the mid 1880s. There, the story might have ended, but very soon after the British granted the Boers full independence, the Boers discovered enormous gold and diamond deposits in their territory making them proportionately the richest nations in the world or very close to being that based on their very small white populations a gold rush followed um the south african republic and the orange Free state changed dramatically because of this and we'll talk a little bit more about how that influences motivation in a moment and inevitably this was going to bring britain and the Boers into conflict again the british eyed this wealth this material wealth with, with very covetous eyes and in the context, of course, of the scramble for Africa, the carving up of Africa between European powers, it was inevitable that the British, who essentially encircled the Boer republics, only Portuguese East Africa uh, on, the, on the East Coast um, was a, a non-British power around the, um, the Boer republics, it was inevitable the British were going to seek to annex uh, these nations. And indeed, uh, they did. By 1899, political pressure, military threat, aimed against the Boer republics was acute and the Boers decided the only way they could ensure their independence was actually to declare war against the British, try and win battlefield victories um, and uh, achieve a compromised peace, essentially trying to rerun the strategy of 1880 to 81, which had, of course the Boers had won that war, the Boers tried it again on a larger scale in 1899 as the only way they felt to protect their independence.
0: We dealt with the first stage of the war uh, in the last podcast, and that may be described as the conventional phase where you have standing armies fighting each other. Could you remind us what happens in the second uh, element of the conflict and what type of uh, fighting took place then?
1: So, absolutely, it's important to note that there are... Um, There's multiple phases in the Boer War. Historians identify usually three, some have said four, and a handful say two, but for the purposes of the podcast I think it's useful for us to think of them as two phases. The conventional phase, which runs from October 1899 and the outbreak of war, to August 1900, and the last pitched battle of the Boer War, which is um, the Battle of Burgerando. Where the Boers are driven from their last defensive redoubts in northeastern Transvaal, and, uh, and, and that's the last pitched battle of the war. The conventional phase of the war was just that um, involving artillery, cavalry, maneuver, entrenchment. Uh, recognisable battle lines, uh, and so forth. What made it rather unusual, of course, is the fact that the Boers don't have a standing army. That's discussed on season one, but just to remind viewers, or or those uh, listeners, I should say, or those who didn't listen to season one, the Boer military units were militia. They were called out in times of war. You were expected to arrive at the summons with a rifle, a horse, and some rations. If you didn't have these things, you could purchase them at a great discount from the uh, the board commissary. And if you were really poor, they, they, the government would actually provide you with this equipment. But you were expected to turn up. All able-bodied men between the ages of 16 and 60 were liable for militia service. When you arrived, you'd be assembled into units based on your geographical region. So uh, it could be based on your town, it could be based on your district, um, might be based in a city or an area of a city that you can, so they were very regionally based. No military training, of course, they didn't have a standing army at all, you're all militiamen, but they made up for this lack of training by the, their um, frontier culture, effectively. Gun culture was huge in South Africa, rifles were seen as a symbol of masculinity, a part of a coming of age element indeed in boar society would be, be as a boy to be presented with your first gun, which would usually occur around the ages of 14. It'd be a small rifle, a .22 or a squirrelling rifle or something similar. And you gradually upgrade to more serious weapons as you got older. Um, shooting at targets was extremely popular in the cities and hunting for game was um, essential, in fact, in uh, the rural areas. And so Boers were very, very comfortable handling firearms. Similarly, there were a mounted culture. Um, the rail network in South Africa was, was very small. Um, of course, there's no motor or effectively no motorised transport in South Africa. So if you want to get somewhere in that vast distance, you either walk or you ride. The Boers were well equipped with their horses, they which were the descendants of the horses which had originally been brought to South Africa by European settlers centuries ago. They were smaller than European horses. They were rather more like a pony, but they were well adapted to the South African heat. Instantly, you can still see some of these animals running wild in South Africa uh, to this day. There's wild colonies of them. Um, A legacy, in fact, of the Boer War. So the the Boer army is not not a formal army. They fight in civilian clothes, um, fight with their own weapons, but they are well-equipped. The the standard rifle is a Mauser-Jerm mauser German mauser which has been, uh, the Boer government's imported thousands of these prior to the conflict, has distributed them. There's also a small amount of Boer artillery uh, available as well. And against this, of course, the, the British bring their, the full weight of their um, colonial army against it. <laughs> the, the early fighting in the conventional stage is difficult. Um, lots and lots of challenges for the British. The Boers are good at concealing themselves. They can use forced African labour to construct trenches of startling complexity. They're skilled with the rifle. Their artillery, although it's a small branch, is well equipped with the latest French and German guns. And they're able, of course, to inflict inflict a real stinging series of defeats on the British in the early conventional phase. Before British reinforcements arrived, mass reinforcements by early 1900, um, combined with uh, the numerical superiority, and improved tactics and um, a, a new tactical approach introduced by Lord Roberts, V.C., the British ultimately overwhelmed the Boers uh, between February 1900 and August 1900, when the last pitch battle takes place. But the Boers don't surrender. Um, the Boers actually continue the fight. The, the surviving Boer units, which are known as commandos, of course, it's simply the Boer word for a military unit, doesn't have any great connotation to them. Surviving Boer commandos escape into the um, the wilderness areas and they, they consider their next move. And the idea that they take is to undertake a, a, a significant guerrilla war against the British, particularly targeting rail lines. In this, they're already inspired by what's been happening earlier in the war because the conventional phase and the guerrilla phase overlap with one another. In March 1900, while the conventional phase was still in progress, Boer um, guerrillas were operating behind British lines. And they'd actually become isolated. They, they, um, the British advance had swept past them and left some balls behind the lines. These balls, though, didn't decide to simply sit and, and do nothing. Instead, they decided they were going to start attacking um, the British rear areas. Led by Christian de Wet, who'd go on to be one of the most famous of the guerrilla leaders, uh, they were able to achieve a startling victory at a place called Sanna's Post in Orange Free State. It's near Bloemfontein, where they ambushed a British column uh, of vastly superior size and essentially wiped it out. The commanders then went on to capture Blomfontein waterworks and switched them off, which meant that the British struggled to acquire clean water in the capital of Blomfontein, which in turn led to an outbreak of cholera, which slowed down the British advance by some two months. The, the success of de um, guerrilla activities inspired other Boer leaders who'd been thinking in this direction already. Indeed, in March 1900, there was a, a meeting at a place called Kronstadt in the Orange Free State, where senior Boer commanders pondered how they should fight the british and even at this stage there were strong arguments that conventional fighting wouldn't work anymore it was necessary to move to a guerrilla war an insurgency if you prefer not everybody at the meeting at kronstadt in march agreed some believed it was necessary to try and defend um, particularly transvaal defend the capital of pretoria there Uh, but other board commander leaders agreed with it and so even then, there was an acknowledgement that, that Boer guerrilla fighting could be used. And it achieved success, raiding the rail line, raiding roads, uh, raiding British rear areas uh, through, from March uh, right up to the end of the conventional fighting in August. But what changes after August is with the end of, a, of the formal Boer armies after the Battle of the, um The Boers decide that those who want to remain in the field, how will we fight? The decisions made that the field army will scatter, it will break down into component commandos and it will begin a dedicated guerrilla war against the British. Now it takes about a month for the Boers to really organise themselves for this. The the commanders need rest. Um, In some cases, they need re-equipment. So there's about a month uh, between September uh, or through September where where things are relatively quiet. And then in October, the guerrilla war really really reignites. The commanders have rested, have prepared, and they descend upon the British rail lines uh, with ferocity. And this really triggers then the the, um, guerrilla war. The guerrilla war itself has a number of phases. Initially, the campaign is fought in occupied South Africa, Transvaal and Orange Free State. So these are the old Boer republics that are under British control. But um, by early 1901, the Boers decided that it's worthwhile actually taking the fight out of these occupied territories into the Cape Colony and Natal. The reasoning for this is there's uh, rich pickings to be had. In these areas, the the British won't expect the Boers to go into these areas. And secondly, there's also a substantial Boer population living in both the Cape and Natal, and it's hoped that they might be inspired to join the Boer commander. And indeed, this, um, to an extent, they will talk more about this in a moment, comes to pass. The Boers are able to recruit Cape rebels uh, and, to a lesser extent, rebels from Natal. It's also much harder uh, for the British to... um, um, destroy Boer property in British South Africa. The British response to this, is the British response to the guerrilla war is a ferocious scorched earth campaign. Um, initially, it starts as a, as a form of punishment for the Boers. So if there's an attack on a railway, then all Boer property within 10 miles of this railway will be destroyed. The inspiration for that incidentally is the, the way the Germans dealt with Franck in the Franco-Prussian war. When French guerrillas were attacking German rail lines, the Prussians would simply scourge the area around it to um, terrify the civilians and discourage um, this from happening. So the British take their inspiration from the Germans but boar attacks on the rail line continue and continue and continue. Um, it's clearly that the, the, the scourging of areas around the rail line just isn't working. There's all kinds of problems with this as well. There's some boars who get their property destroyed. They've got nothing to do with it. They've surrendered. They've got no interest, um, which, of course, just creates more enemies. Nevertheless, by, by um, early 1901, Lord Kitchener's in charge, and he decides there is going to be a total scorched earth policy against the boars. It Simply all their rural property will be destroyed to deny Um, the guerrillas any form of supply or support so one of the reasons that the Boers then go into the the cape is you can't destroy the property in the cape as readily because there's lots of British citizens or or British empire citizens living there so simply torching all the farms in this region is, is just not going to work so it's better to campaign in this area potentially than in occupied South Africa. So that's one of the reasons why the war spills out of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State into Cape Colony and to a lesser extent uh, into Natal. Um, the war rages on as a guerrilla conflict throughout 1901 into 1902 uh, until eventually sheer um, the, the sheer attrition of this war grinds the Boers down. The Boers are slowly but surely losing manpower um, they're becoming more and more exhausted. They're finding it harder and harder to acquire supplies. And two of the reasons why they're finding it hard to acquire supplies is the scorched earth policy has ultimately worked. It has simply devastated um, Orange Free State in Transvaal. There's nothing there. The boars can't get any food. They can't get any um, ammunition. They struggle for clothing. The second reason is the um, the blockhouse system. So the British have built some 8,000 blockhouses, mainly along river crossings and along rail lines. These are small individual pillboxes they um, made out of all sorts of things, sandbags, wood, um, corrugated iron. have got a garrison of usually a, somewhere between five and 10 soldiers. And they're positioned in this enormous series of lines with wire um, linking each blockhouse in turn. And it creates this enormous barrier, which vastly re- reduces the boar mobility. The boars don't have the firepower to destroy the blockhouses. It is possible to cut your way past the blockhouse, and it does happen, but it's difficult. The boars have to fight whenever they want to approach the rail line. They have to fight when they want to cross a river. And it slowly but surely constrains manoeuvre. It also represents the biggest man-made construction of defences in Africa uh, since ancient times. So it's a remarkable piece of uh, of military engineering, and it greatly slows down uh, the boars. The final factor, and one that we we tend to forget, it's a little bit... exited really from um, cultural memory, is the face of civilians. Now, there's an awful lot of focus, quite rightly, on the concentration camp system that the British set up. The concentration camp system is a way to house the refugees that the British are creating through scorched earth. Now, I've spoken about concentration camps elsewhere. They're they're a subject in their, their own. Um, of course, deeply controversial and ultimately a humanitarian disaster. What's changed by the end of 1901, though, is there's been an, an invest. There's been a public scandal in Britain and the Empire. There's been an investigation led by suffragette Millicent Fawcett, which has condemned the camp system and has led to a huge number of reforms. Crucial and often neglected in this is, from December 1901 onwards, the British stopped taking civilians into the concentration camps. Instead, any civilians made homeless by scorched earth will now be thrown out into the open and the Boers will have to look after them. And it means that by the end of the war in May 1902, the Boers are sheltering about 10,000 of their own civilians. And these civilians are experiencing appalling hardships. There's no food for them. There's no shelter. There's no medical support. In fact, conditions are so bad for Boer refugees with um, the commandos that in some cases, only a handful, uh, but in some cases the Boers actually drop off Um, civilians at the gates of concentration camps in the hope that the camp will take them in. That's how grim it is for you if you're living in the wilderness in in 1902. And the sight of civilians suffering like this is having a terrible effect on the the morale of the Boer fighters. And it's it's clear that this cannot go on. So the Boers are are just completely militarily and psychologically exhausted by May 1902. Combined with relatively lenient peace
0: terms that the British offer in May 1902, it encourages the Boers to make peace and ultimately end the war. But it's, it's quite amazing that the Boers, you know, last maybe a year um, in the wilderness under these extreme conditions and they keep going. Why do they keep going? That is really a, a fascinating question. Well, this is uh, the heart of the matter, I think, the combat motivation of the
1: Boers. And- I think there are several um, factors we can discuss here. Incidentally, if anybody's really interested in in how the Boers think, how they fight, like, it would be wrong of me not to recommend a superb book by Franz and Pretorius, which is called Life on Commander. And uh, it's based on his, I think it was based on his PhD. A um, little bit difficult to get hold of now, I think it's out of print, but it is the best English language study of, um, of the Boers at war. And I base, I base part of my answer on uh, on this on his work. So I'm indebted to his motivation for the Boers is a complicated and really interesting question. There's there's several factors at play. One, um, and perhaps it's the one the British often place a lot of focus on, is their religion. Boer religion is heavily based on the Old Testament. It is a a real fire and brimstone version of Protestantism that would be recognisable to um anybody from the mid 1600s onwards and those of you who, of course, know this period, the period of religious war in Europe, intense religious fevour in many cases. It's when you get the witch hunts in England and so forth. That religion has is little change for the Boers. They have a, a, almost an apocalyptic attitude towards um, religion that very much sees earthly sufferings as part of, of human inheritance and that there is a redemptive quality to suffering. The, it also brings hope of... A better life after this one. And it's a powerful motivating factor. It greatly adds to Boer resilience. And even at the, the depths of the guerrilla war, religious observance amongst Boer commandos remains high. Um, the prayer meetings, Bible readings, um, many Boers carry a Bible in their, their uh, knapsack, their haversack, and so forth. And it provides a really powerful cultural tool that keeps the boys in the field. Suffering is part of your life. Suffering is, is the nature of humanity. Um, those who endure suffering, uh, the, the suffering that God has placed upon you will ultimately prevail and will be led to victory. And so it allows the boys to endure a, a real, a real hardship with this cultural background that this is all part of a greater plan and that if they can endure it, they will be found worthy and they'll either achieve Success in this life or in the next, and this is something that is so deeply ingrained into Boer culture. It's almost one of the it's one of the many unique features of Boer culture. It's it's the British atri- understand that the religious motivation is very high, but in some ways they underestimate just how high it is. It is a hugely influential uh, tool to keep the Boers in the field. There's other factors as well um, beyond the religion. One is that the um, tremendous cohesion. Of uh, Bo commanders who remain in the field, some of these men have been fighting alongside one another from October eighteen ninety nine onwards. They may be friends. They may have known each other in peacetime. They've been drawn from a the similar geographic area. They may even be family members, and so it means that boar commanders, not always, because some commanders are very more disparate, um, almost desperados rather than. Um, patriotic fighters, but many commandos are, have very tight cohesion. You know each other, you can trust each other, you've been friends, uh, you come from the same area and of course it keeps you in the field, it keeps you tight because you, these are people you know, you've grown up around and maybe your distant family, your cousins for example, which adds uh, to this strong sense of cohesion um, which is underestimated I think by the, the British and British made, the British make various attempts to actually infiltrate Boar commandos which I'll perhaps talk about in a moment very few of these succeed and one of the reasons they don't succeed is the cohesion of surviving Boar commandos is very tight and they'll quickly identify outsiders um, or those who are a little bit suspicious and um, the fate of these outsiders is is is, is appalling incidentally Uh, they're, they're tortured and shot in most cases so it's difficult to penetrate these groups they are very they have high levels of cohesion and By fighting through the field, enduring hardships with that religious background, of course, it amplifies their sense of unity, their sense of of group. A third factor is that the Boers, uh, almost through sheer experience, generate a, a powerful group of. Um, I suppose, what you might call junior leaders. There's no NCO system as such. There is an officer system in the military. Uh, By the time we're into the commando stage, Mm -hmm. military ranks basically start to fade away um, the, the, the rank structure becomes a lot looser in the guerrilla amongst the guerrillas. But there is a recognition that there are men who are leaders here. And these are men who who become leaders through sheer blood and guts, through sheer experience. You follow these men because they lead you to victory. Um, and it's interesting to look at the, the different profiles of men who become leaders within commandos because they really do run a gamut from men who are natural um, natu- have natural leadership qualities, um, and inspire those around them, people trust them, to men who basically run their kimonos with an iron fist, um, something rather akin to an outlaw leader. You're simply terrified to go against him because he'll, he'll whip you uh, with his shambock, his rhino-hide whip, uh, or, or shoot you or cast you out onto the belts. So, but whatever the case is, and there's a wide variety of bull leadership styles, um, these leaders have emerged, they've been forged in the heat of battle and that uh, they ultimately prove militarily successful. Just further on that as well, it's worth remembering that the nature of the commando war means you either win or you die. Um, commando leaders by the middle stages of the war are men who have succeeded, who have success, who can point to a track record of leading their commandos to victory. Because if you fail, you're probably going to be killed or captured by the British. And if you survive that, you'll probably your commando might um, dissipate underneath you. There are instances where men leave one commando and join another because they don't trust their leadership. And so there is this constant um, pressure testing of bore leadership effect. There's, another, there's two other factors as well. So we've covered religion, we've covered cohesion, we've covered the leadership. Another factor is um, is, is quite simply that, that many of the Boer commanders have got nowhere to go. Their, their homes have been destroyed, their families have been imprisoned in concentration camps, or in some cases may have died in those camps. There's nothing left. Where do you go? If you, if you give up and you, you go to the British, you can't go back to your farm because the farm has been destroyed. And so you might become a refugee somewhere and a, the concentration camps house a, a small number of males, but they, they're usually older men. What do you do? There's nowhere for you to go. Um, and so th- th- there's little motivation for individual commando members to surrender, especially if they've lost their homes. There are urban boys who are still fighting with commandos. They can go back to the cities, but otherwise there's, there's, there's little reason to go. You, you better to fight on because you've lost everything. Um if you win the war, you might just get everything back. And add too that as the war goes on, particularly from mid nineteen and nineteen oh one onwards, it becomes harder for the Boers to surrender to the British. Um, the war becomes increasingly ruthless. The, the British openly shooting prisoners who are captured carrying any elements of British equipment, executing anybody who's from the Cape. Uh, they build them as Cape rebels and uh, treat them very badly. Um, And so there's little inclination for you to surrender. You've lost everything. If you surrender, the British will probably treat you very badly. Uh, You're better off staying with this uh, commando group uh, who at least, if they win, then there's, there's a slim chance that you're going to, um, you're going to reverse the course of the war. The final element is is hatred. Um, the Balkanos are intensely motivated against the British, and this motivation develops as the war goes on. As they see the effects of the scorched earth, they learn of the concentration camps and that the widespread deaths of women and children. They see the devastation. They know the way the British treat them. Um, if they capture them, uh, hatred and, and just absolute enmity towards the British grows in intensity, and so this this is a powerful motivator. Of course, it does encourage this enormous growth of violence that you start to see from mid-1901 onwards. Brutality, um, as often occurs in guerrilla war, intensifies as the war goes on. So we have a range of factors, the religious elements, the cohesion of these relatively small groups, Incidentally, I haven't mentioned, but commandos varied in size. From Smallest commandos were, were somewhere in the region of about 30 men. They could shrink down to, to smaller groups at various times. But larger commandos might boast perhaps 200. There, there was no set number for this, and the numbers would fluctuate. Furthermore, commandos could actually merge together, sometimes permanently, sometimes temporarily, before they went their separate ways. But in general, your commando group would be quite small. You would have a small number of men, who you knew extremely well. Um, you'd have close friends, possible family members, and this is emphasised by the fact that the boys tended to sleep um, in, in the sleeping arrangements. The boys tend to be shared beds, um, practical, of course, during colder nights in South Africa, which created close bonds uh, amongst the men. So you have religion, cohesion, the leadership, the fact that the boys have got nowhere else to go, uh, and the hatred. Uh, that they increasingly feel towards the British. And by the end, the last surviving Boer commandos are quite appropriately known as the bitter enders. And it's not merely that they're fighting to the bitter end, it's also that they are incredibly bitter. And with much justification, it must be said, towards the British for what's happened. So that's an
0: overview of, of some of the key factors, I think, about why the Boers continue to fight. So let's turn to the the British side. How did the British remain motivated for the last part of the the war? And did they have any morale problems? So British
1: motivation is... In some ways, simpler than the balls. The, um, the, the British, of course, are in a formal army. That comes with certain advantages. You've got regular actions. Um, there's a, you've got somewhere to stay. There's a certain amount of organisation going on around you. You're not just living in the wilderness. But British motivation is a, a really interesting subject. And there has been some work done on this. Um, notably by Stephen Miller, whose book Volunteers on the Velt is is an interesting starting point, I think, for this study. I think there's actually a lot more work to be done on British morale in the latter part of the, the guerrilla war. There's a number of things, though, where there's clearly negative influences on British morale. Now... It's important, I think, not to overemphasize these. The, the extent to, to which they're going to cause a, a collapse, a total collapse of morale, it's just not really going to happen with the British. The army's too well organized, there's, there's too many soldiers. But there's a number of things that are certainly uh, damaging the, the, the mood of the army. If we, if we take Clausewitzian's idea of mood and spirit, you know, mood is surface and spirit is deeper, the, the British uh, mood in South Africa is, is quite low. Um, at various times, particularly in 1901 and 1902, there's several factors that explain this. One is the fact that the British soldiers in general are, and I hesitate to, to use this word, but they're—I they're, wouldn't say—I'm going to say—repulsed by the atmosphere of South Africa. That's probably too strong a word, but it's amazing the, the number of soldiers who dislike South Africa as a as a, as a country. The heat is too much. The geographic scale is bewildering. The insect life is a constant problem, particularly the flies that descend on you, descend on your animals, descend on the food. Um, the population, of course, is unfriendly as well. The boars have you know, boar, um, civilians have absolutely no interest in interacting with British soldiers. Regard them with um, you know, hatred and suspicion. There's few, There's no particular opportunity to interact. Uh, With British citizens, because the British Army isn't really operating in those areas, it's often operating in areas of wilderness, um, sometimes man-made wilderness because of scorched earth, so there's there's very little to do. Uh, And there's a sense of of futility in some ways, because the British are marching around, they're chasing these Boer commandos in just empty, devastated areas where there's nothing to see. Uh, And quite often there's no contact with the enemy. Instead, you're just battling the environment uh, constantly, the heat, the uh, wildlife uh, and all the other problems uh, that go with it. And and the, the British, the common British soldier has little positive to say about his time in South Africa. In fact, in the aftermath of the South African war, there's a real hope in parts of um, the British government, that South Africa will be um, settled by soldier settlers, that, that British soldiers who fought in South Africa will want to settle there, and, and uh, they'll, they'll make it more of an Anglo-sized culture. Uh, that just doesn't happen, and British soldiers can't wait to get out of South Africa. There's very, very little immigration to South Africa um, from ex-soldiers in the aftermath of the war. There is some, there is some, but there's this comparatively little. So the British don't like operating in South Africa uh, at, at all. Uh, secondly is the, the nature of the war. The, the war itself involves an enormous amount of trekking about and not seeing much, maybe exchanging a few shots with boars from miles away, uh, but generally not doing a lot. Apart from, particularly 1900 and 1901, destroying boar property. Now this is a controversial uh, aspect of the war. And it's difficult to get at the real views on this because, of course, it, polite Victorian society did not really appreciate soldiers reveling in this level of destruction. But we know from unpublished diaries and unpublished letters that some soldiers enjoyed the violence. They enjoyed the brutality. They enjoyed the experience of destroying property and uh, generally causing havoc. But for other soldiers, it depressed them. That this There was a sense that these farmhouses they were burning were not dissimilar to farmhouses they'd seen back at home. Or, and that, of course, isn't just in Britain, it's also in Australia and New Zealand and other parts of South Africa, Canada too. So the, the level of violence towards civilians, um, though it's not universal, I think some soldiers probably enjoyed it. Other soldiers are, are dispirited by it. And so this is a, a weight that sits uh, sits on them and, and grows, of course, the war goes on. The other factor that's, that's harming morale is when there is action between the Boers and the British, it's often in the form of an ambush. Um, sometimes the British ambushed the Boers, sometimes the Boers ambushed the British. And these ambushes are close range, they're extremely intense firefights, often with proportionally very high casualties. And if you've ever seen the, the painting, the Captain Woodville painting, all that was left of them showing, I think the seventh from memory, the 17th Lancers uh, being violently ambushed in September, I think it was September 1901. Um, you can look it up the all that was left of them, famous painting. Um, This type of ambush where about 50% of those who were caught in the ambush, British soldiers caught in the ambush, were killed or wounded, is quite emblematic of the violence of these ambushes. And there was a growing sense of violence and frustration. The Boers would emerge, ambush a British column, inflict heavy losses on it, and then disappear into the wilderness. And of course it enraged the British, it made them frustrated. And so when they got their hands on the Boers, violence often followed. Um, Execution of prisoners was was extremely common, especially if they were caught carrying elements of British equipment, which as the war went on, the Boers were increasingly dependent on looted British equipment. And so it was almost inevitable you'd find Boers carrying it. So the violence towards prisoners increases, violence towards Boers increases, uh, and the nature of the war, that tension, of if you're moving through an area, you might be ambushed at any moment, really weighs on the soldiers. And I think we can actually see some comparisons about how that must have been with a modern war. Uh, If anybody uh, read or studied about the the feeling that um, 21st century soldiers felt in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, heading into areas worried about IEDs, worried about ambushes, well, the same pressures are weighing on British soldiers operating out in the wilderness. So there's a lot of psychological pressure weighing on the British. How do they overcome it? It's through the, the the advantages they have as a formal army. Now there are, of course, volunteers, as civilians in uniform, if you will, um, from the militia, from the yeomanry, from the volunteers that Britain's uh, second line troops who are in South Africa. Um, But even they are still part of a formal militarised system. They have officers, they have um, a degree of training, uniforms, rations and so on. And it's important to note as well that the the average British unit is not in the front line all the time. They get rotated out. There's uh, opportunities for them to rest, uh, recuperate, um, do other things. Um, They're not in constant action. There's a degree of safety, therefore, that they have. And of course, they have the advantages inherent to, to all standing armies. Um, you know, you have uh, military discipline, you have pay, you have uh, rations, you have equipment, uh, you have an officer corps, an NCO corps and so on, uh, which means that the army is resilient. It, it can take this kind of, of grinding, um, grinding war and ultimately can, can outlast the Boers, um, largely, of course, because the British have so many more troops that they can deploy relative uh, to Boer commandos. But it, it's significant that the soldiers, in, the British soldiers um, in South Africa... In the guerrilla phase, you, uh, we, I'm going to paint with a very broad brush, but the general impression one gets from reading their unpublished material is, is a sense of frustration, a depression, perhaps too strong a word, but a sense of disenchantment, a sense of being dispirited by this guerrilla war, the sights and sounds of it, the, the difficulties of South Africa, the Depression that some soldiers feel at the destruction visited on civilians and the creation of refugees and the the tension due to the nature of combat all weigh heavily on um, on many, um, many British soldiers. And it's one of the reasons why in the huge explosion of literature that comes with the Boer War, and it is a fast explosion of literature that, that runs right up to the First World War and to an extent beyond it, in all this literature, there is very little that's published about the guerrilla phase of the war. There's memoirs, there's accounts, there's books about the conventional phase, there's there's novels written about it, there's all sorts. It's a huge explosion of interest. But the guerrilla phase of the war generates pitifully little literature. Um, It's just not something people want to discuss. It's not something that those who fought in that phase, uh, certainly on the British side, are particularly keen uh, to discuss either. Um, probably the most famous book, actually published in the 1930s, is Ian Hamilton, uh, later, of course, Commander Glippley. His book, Anti-Commando, which is about, um, is, is actually well worth reading. He's a very good writer, Hamilton, but of his strengths and weaknesses as a general. Hamilton's book, Anti-Commando, about leading commando sweeps, or anti-commando sweeps, is actually quite interesting and, and gives you a different perspective. But if you're looking for accounts from common British soldiers about what it's like to be in the, um, the guerrilla war, um, there's almost nothing, almost nothing is published. Um, you might find fragments in wider memoirs, but it's, it's a period of the war that, that I think soldiers just want to forget. So um, does, does it lead to problems with morale? Yes, in the sense that there is a certain degree of violence and indiscipline at the edges. And most famous, of course, Breaker Morant. And I don't think we can talk about morale in the British Army without mentioning Breaker Morant and his unit, the Bushfeld. Ears. So I'm sure everybody listening is at least vaguely familiar with the break-around story, but he was an Australian soldier in a, in, in a, in a volunteer Australian unit, the Bushveld Carboneers, uh, and he was convicted and executed for uh, murder along with one other man from the unit, and the third man was um, ultimately wasn't sentenced to death, but was uh, cashiered out of the arm. The, the fate of Breaker Morant um, is a lingering source of controversy. Was he mistreated by the British and so on? Um, was he shot to encourage the others and so forth? What I think is the more interesting element for this podcast is what had brought the Bushveld Carboneers to a point where they were carrying out, effectively, atrocities, and how much did this reflect... Um, wider trend in the British Army. Uh, Morant and his co-conspirators were arrested for murdering Boer prisoners and also murdering civilians in in the war zone, including German missionary. Morant's defence, of course memorably portrayed by Edward Woodward in the film break, was that Boer prisoners were shot under Rule 303. 303, of course, the Lee-Enfield bullet caliber. Whether the, the, the phrase Rule 303 was ever used in the Boer War is very, very doubtful. But what that does convey is... Um, a certain truth, and that's that shooting Boer prisoners was widespread across the British Army. To give you a a feel for that, just as Morant um, was about to go on trial, Douglas Haig, future commander-in-chief of the British Army um, on the Western Front, was writing to his sister, Henrietta, and quite almost cheerfully telling her that he and his forces had executed a number of Boer prisoners, which they captured during a sweep in September. Um, and he was openly telling his sister that this happened. And we know this went on. So Morant was not an outlier. He was not a, um, a, rogue, a rogue element here. He was probably right to say that this is what was going on in the army as a whole. The Bushville Carboniers, though, are, are an interesting case because they were operating in what was known as uh, the, the bandit country, uh, right up in the north of Transvaal, a very wild uh, area. Um, very rural um, or very, very wilderness. There was some fierce fighting in bull commandos there, uh, bitter ambushes, sniping and so forth. And the, the, the tragedy of the Bushwell Carboneers is, is one that we see repeated with a number of uh, military units um, that go bad it's isolated it's not operating alongside its its allies it suffers a number of setbacks the loss of an extremely popular officer a captain who's killed um in somewhat unusual circumstances killed by a boar sniper that greatly it both enrages and demoralizes the carboneers a lack of oversight nobody's really um keeping their eye on them they've probably been out at the front a bit too long they're starting to go a bit wild they're starting to become bandits more so than soldiers and all these factors, this loss of a popular leader, the um, lack of oversight, the degradation of discipline, and, of course, all the pressures of the nature of the war, which we've already discussed, start to turn this unit bad. And, um, of course, they're fighting in, uh, in, in a period where shooting prisoners is, is widely goes on, even though it's an absolutely not official policy, uh, and they simply do it more vigorously and more openly than perhaps other units. Indeed, it's been suggested that they would have got away with it had they not killed civilians too. It's the, um, the violence against civilians that really attracts the British authorities' notice. The, um, of course, um, Breckman shot along with one of his co-conspirators, the third publishes a book called Scapegoats of the Empire, which mysteriously it's printed, and then the warehouse holding nearly all of its copies gets burned down. So this adds to a strong conspiracy theory here. I don't think there is a conspiracy theory. Um, I think there's a number of factors in this, I think the Bushfoot Carboneers were bad. I think they were out of control. Morant was a murderer. He never denied the fact he was a murderer. He simply said that everybody was doing it. And so he'd done it himself. And the context is also important. So September 1901 is a really hard month uh, for the British. There's some vicious ambushes of British columns. It's all sorts of problems. And of course, the concentration camp scandal has broken in Britain. And Millicent Fawcett, I, I think she arrives in October, but she's on her way with a commission to investigate um, the concentration camp. So there is huge pressure on the British military authorities. They know that there's a political scandal in Britain and they can't allow. They need to set an example saying, well, we're fighting this war um, properly. We're not simply um, brutalising the poor population. And so Moran is in some ways, I think, he's, he's unlucky enough to be picked out as a scapegoat. But this isn't to diminish the fact that he's a murderer. He's killing. Um, he's murdering prisoners, he's murdering civilians, and, and he's part of a wider culture that is, is approving this. And so there we see, I think, the effects of the morale pressures on the British. There is ex- extreme violence towards the Boers. And uh, I think this is one of the things we, we forget, the guerrilla wars are never clean. There's all kinds of pressures and, and difficulties that are weigh upon um, soldiers, no matter highly trained. In the case of the Bushfield Carbonians, they're not highly trained. They're volunteers, um, and as I've outlined, there's all these pressures on them, and and they effectively go bad. They go out of control. One of the great questions is, are they um, a uniquely bad unit, or do they reflect a wider pattern of violence within the British Army? It's difficult to get at that, of course, because... Not many people write about this. Um, Haig's letter, of course, to his sister is often cited, but finding common soldiers talking about violence towards prisoners is possible. It does exist. I've seen it. Um, But drawing wider conclusions about this is is fraught with difficulty. My own feeling is this is um, the same kind of violence that we see in any protracted war, particularly guerrilla war where units are out on a limb, they lack oversight, men are being pushed to their limit. And it's deeply, deeply unpleasant. Of course, it's deeply tragic as well. And it's a, a powerful reminder of the, the human and psychological cost of war. And finally, Spencer, so where can people learn more about your work? So you can look me up on the internet. Um, I'm moderately active on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at historian1914, all one word. Uh, You can type my name into Google. Uh, Just make sure you put doctor at the front because otherwise you'll find um, popular British, either popular British comedian, Spencer Jones or a variety of American sportsmen who share my name um, or you can look me up on the University of Wolverhampton's website and you can get in touch me there. I published a number of books. Um, my main book about the Boer War is From Boer War to World War, which is actually about the period after the Boer War. It's about the development of the, uh, the British Army before the First World War. I published various articles on the subject and there's a number of YouTube lectures as well that I've delivered that you can find uh, again if you just type in Spencer Jones Boer War into YouTube you can find me talking about um, both the course of the war and also specifically about the concentration camp system. So uh, lots of ways to get in touch with me. And if, you, if you'd if you like to pick up a discussion about the Boer War in any way, shape or form, I'd love to hear from you. So do drop me a line on Twitter or ping me an email. Peter, thank you very
0: much for your time.
1: Thank you, Tom.